A couple years ago, I went to a conference, and I was uh, in the audience, not presenting, and the conference was on having a good death. And there was a Jew and a Muslim, a couple different kinds of Christians, and a Buddhist. And the Jew spoke first, and then one of the Christians spoke, and then it came time for the Buddhist to speak. So I was very interested in what she was going to say. She started off by saying, I've been on retreat for the last week. My mind has settled. I have a certain clarity. And I'm not sure what good means in the context of a good death. And I thought to myself, wow, those Buddhists, they're really complicated. Because everybody else just sort of talked about having a good death and what you needed to do to have that. So for the last few weeks, I've been thinking about the word good in the context of a life. What is a good life? And is good the same for everybody? Or do certain people think maybe good is having less and good is having more? I posted a cartoon on my Facebook page a while back of an old guy dying. His wife was sitting next to him holding his hand. And he looked at her and said, I wish I had bought more stuff. (laughs) And sometimes that's how we look at our life. If if we have like a lot of stuff, we're having a good life. And and, uh, so I thought to myself, well, you know, uh, what is a good life in the context of my life? And actually it's being happy with less. Because I live in a room, like all the monks here, and people are very generous and kind, and they give us a lot of stuff. But pretty soon, if you've lived in your room 10 or 20 years, your room gets full of stuff that you've never used or used once, and it takes up a lot of space. And sometimes letting go, uh, re-gifting, letting other people use your stuff so you can use your room, Uh, is the way to go. Now, is that good for everybody? Well, probably not. When I look at people who are married and thinking about families or have families, they need a lot of stuff. And and they usually start with maybe a mortgage and a house and then a couple cars. and, And then the kids consume so much stuff besides food and diapers they also have toys and then pretty soon it's education and pretty soon it's college tuition and bang 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 and now we have seven billion people it really worked well and then a couple of us have decided to go in a different direction and have less stuff and maybe no family but a lot of friends with something in common so good I think for a Buddhist, we could translate good into skillful. And skillful being, if we have a skillful life, we're going to suffer less. If we have an unskillful life, we're going to suffer more. So, we look at our life and say, how am I going to build a skillful life? What do I need to do? And it becomes obvious that we need to start with our karma. Because our karma ultimately will define who we are in this life and who we can be in the next life. So karma is what we think, what we say, and what we do. 
Now, the consequences of what we think, say, and do, we call vipaka, V-I-P-A-K-A. So we have cause and we have consequence. We have karma, we have vipaka. And oftentimes, the vipaka is something that surprises us because we had no idea it was going to go in that direction because we had the best of intentions. And, and so it's difficult when we're struggling with delusion to know what to do next. But the Buddha gave us a clue. He said, if you want to follow me, I suggest and encourage you to practice the five precepts. They will direct your speech and action in a skillful way. And the consequences of that should be happiness and fulfillment. So we look at the five precepts and we say, okay, I'm going to practice them. I'm going to train myself to follow them until they become part of me. And I no longer have to practice. Now it's simply a performance that occurs because I have practiced them 10,000 times. So... We all know what they are, but I'll refresh your memory. The first one is, I will practice not to take life. Second one is, I will practice not to take what is not given. Third one, I will practice not indulging in sexual misconduct. Fourth one, I will practice not to speak unskillfully. Fifth one, I will practice not to consume intoxicants to the point of intoxication. Now, we at this center throw that last part in there because... Oftentimes, in the context of uh, a social gathering, uh, intoxicants are served. And do we want to be antisocial? Well, as a Buddhist, I would say probably not. We want to be interconnected and interdependent. But maybe instead of having five beers, we have one. Or maybe instead of having a gin and tonic, we have a glass of water. And we can exercise our social skills and not become more deluded through intoxication. Now, one of my favorite blues songs is, I ain't drunk, I just been drinking. <laughs> and, and that probably is how most of us approach our drinking. We're just going to have a few. So, for a Buddhist, what's the problem with, with drinking? If everybody does it, and have done it since the beginning of humankind, we all seem to like to get high, I suppose. I like Hershey's with almonds, myself. And it's an easily controlled highness, if you will. It steals our wisdom, and we become really stupid, and we do dumb things, and we create more suffering rather than less. And it just goes against everything Buddhism stands for. We want to reduce suffering, not increase it. So we need clarity. Number one, we need clarity of mind. And number two, we need kindness of speech and action. Kindness and clarity, the two wings of the Buddhist bird. And those five precepts allow us to achieve a certain sense of clarity and kindness by practicing these these moral values, if you will. I hate to use the word moral values because it sounds so Christian. But it's a way of living with other people. And, and if we don't have any kind of personal discipline, for instance, the five precepts, we're not going to make good neighbors. 
And, and so if a Buddhist is practicing the five precepts, they will be invited to live in any community because they don't pose a threat. So, it starts there. The second part is the mind. So the five precepts deal with the karma of our speech and the karma of our action, and then we have the karma of our mind. What is our intention? What are we thinking? What drives our speech and action in the world? Can we become aware of it? Can we, can we use it to our advantage, if you will, to reduce suffering? So we sit for really long periods of time. Sometimes, uh, yesterday we had a, a few hours of retreat. People came here and sat for a few hours, watched their thoughts arise, exist, and pass away. We just meditated a few minutes before the talk, and we watched our thoughts arise, exist, and pass away. I'm sure some of the thoughts were, when are they going to ring the gong? Why are we sitting here quietly? And, and those things are the object of focus, but they ultimately don't have to be who we are. And that's the most amazing part, I think, of our meditation practice, is we don't have to be our thoughts. We have a way of simply observing them arise, exist, and pass away without having to relate to them in any personal way. Why do we think? Well, we have a human birth, we have a mind and a body. We think those thoughts are us. We've had thoughts ever since we began thinking. We even have thoughts at night when we dream. And sometimes they're just wonderful and sometimes not so good and sometimes they're deluded and sometimes they're filled with greed and sometimes with hatred. And it goes on and on and on. And then you start to sit on a cushion and you start to see your thoughts and sometimes you're even able to see between the thoughts. And that is a remarkable experience, that you can watch one thought arise, exist, and pass away. There's a moment of silence, and then the next thought arises, exists, and passes away. And then the next thought. And in between each thought is that place of tranquility and peace. The place of no thought. But we can't stay there because we need to think. We have a very complicated world out there. We need to be able to relate to it, respond to it, react to it. Especially if you're crossing the street. Man, the way people drive, you don't want to just take it for granted that they're going to stop for you. You want to be aware and be able to get out of the way when they don't. So, we want to think. Thinking is good. Thinking is an important part of being who you are. But you don't have to be every thought. You can be the good thoughts. The good thoughts are thoughts of generosity, thoughts of kindness, thoughts of wisdom. You don't have to be the bad thoughts, which are thoughts of greed, thoughts of hatred, and thoughts of delusion. So we sit, and we sit, and we sit. Now the good life is starting to form. We're using karma to our advantage. We're using the five precepts to modify the speech karma and action karma. We're using our meditation practice to modify our thinking karma. And now we're going to apply the three aspects of Buddhist wisdom to our life and the world around us. The three aspects of Buddhist wisdom are anicca, dukkha, anatta. Anicca. All things change all the time. Nothing stays the same longer than a moment. Nothing ever happens twice. Everything only happens once. 
And I can remember back in the 80s having a couple really interesting meditation experiences. And I spent years trying to redo them, trying to re-experience them, and failed miserably because I didn't realize that certain conditions were necessary for everything to happen. But all those conditions came together in that unique way only once in that moment. And then the conditions changed. And to try to put all the conditions together again, impossible. Because everything changed. Not only did I change, but the world changed. And my practice changed. And my intention changed. So, don't get caught. Don't cling. Don't grasp. It will only cause you to have a life that's filled with dissatisfaction and disappointment. Clinging, grasping. Because everything changes. Number two, everything is ultimately unsatisfactory. This is such a good place to be in. When you go out that door, expect the worst. And be surprised when it turns out to be okay. Because we do the exact opposite. We expect the best and are disappointed when it turns out not to be so good. But the Buddha said, you know, ultimately because of all this stuff changing and our attachment and grasping, we will become disappointed in the way things are. We wish we could be in control of them and have them turn out to be just the way we think they should be. But we are only one of the contributing factors that determines what our life is. Only one. And there are 9,999 other contributing factors that go in to making a unique personal moment. We are simply one of the contributing factors. So don't be surprised if you get disappointed with your life in the way it's relating to the world. I oftentimes say to myself when I'm disappointed, oh well, oh well. And I go on to the next thing. If, if I'm frustrated with things being the way they are, I'll be frustrated the rest of my life. Oh well, oh well. Last but not least, we aren't who we think we are. This took me a really long time to grasp, because I would look in the mirror and see that same person looking back every day. If I could have taken a picture of that person 10 years ago, I'd realize that the person looking in the mirror today is most likely different, physically and emotionally and mentally. So who is this person, and why is there a causal connection between who I used to be and who I'm going to be? And I'm in sort of in the middle of that now. My whole life is in the middle of what I used to be and what I'm going to be. I'm in a constant state of becoming. The Buddha warned us, we will be becoming something else every moment. Now, we need to make the world small enough to understand it, so we take this giant complex of world and self that are always evolving, always in a constant state of flux, and we reduce it to our experience. 
This is how I experience the world. This is the I, that's the world, and between the I and the world is experience. Okay, cool. But if you solidify the I and make it who you are every day, you're going to miss a lot of opportunities. Because if you are solidified I, thinking I see the world in this way, I know what will happen next, I am in control, I will miss so much stuff going on in the world. So sometimes in the Zen tradition, they will ask you directly, the Zen master, who are you? What, were you, what was your original face before you were born? And you look at the Zen master and you go, I don't know. That is the best answer you can give. Don't know answer. It applies to everything in your life. Why are you here? Don't know. Where are you going? Don't know. And that allows you to see every opportunity that arises, that makes itself available to you. Back a few years ago, they had something called a Course in Miracles. And I was always a little down on this course, because what they kept saying was, you can have anything you want. All you have to do is want it enough, and it can be yours. And then I thought to myself, well, which is more, what I know or what I don't know? And of course, what I don't know is much greater than what I do know. So why should I limit myself to what I want? It's such a small part of the universe. Why not say, I want what I don't want, which is everything else. So, <laughs> so we can have a good life if we don't get caught in our limitation of being who we think we are. And the Buddha said, you are mind and body, nama rupa, you are the five aggregates, you are the 32 parts, you are always something more than one. Never one. It's never reducible to one in Buddhism, which is much different than it is in Christianity, because Christianity says, well, the one is the best. Are you going to be the one? Is he the one? And in Buddhism they say, well, you know, it's one connected to the many. Our identity is reflected by how we're interconnected and interdependent. It's not that we ever stand alone. Nothing ever stands alone in Buddhism. We create community because we are interconnected and interdependent. Now, that took me a long time to really appreciate, especially living in Los Angeles, because when you are successful in Los Angeles, you buy a house on top of a hill, you fence it off and have a bunch of cameras, and there you live all alone. And you say to yourself, I made it. I am a success. <laughs> and the reality of the situation is you become successful when you see the interconnection and interdependence with everyone, all the time. They may not see it, Sometimes when I do interfaith dialogues, they say, we're happy you're with us. We're happy you're one with us. And I say to them, I've been connected to you all the time. You just didn't see it. You expected an invitation to change something. For me, it just validated something. We're all in this together, whether you know it or not. So, good life. Don't know. 
<laughs> After all that talking I just did, I don't know. It seems to be just what we're doing at the time. And sometimes if what we're doing at the time is reducing suffering, we can reflect and say, yeah, that's a good life. That's my purpose. That's the meaning. I'm glad I'm here. And if what we're doing is not so skillful and creating more suffering and creating suffering for ourselves, we need to reflect on those two aspects I started with. Insight and kindness. We need to look at that and say, what am I missing? What don't I see? Why are people uncomfortable when I'm in the room? Is it something I'm doing? Or is it something they're doing? Or is it just something? Can we change that? Well, every moment, we're a different person arising, existing, and passing away. I am much different when I'm on the 405 freeway. I may not be as kind, but I have great insight into the true nature of bad driving. And I'm the victim of it. And I finally get off of my, my um, exit, and there it is. I'm back to who I was before I got on the freeway. So can I change that? Can I be that skillful urban driver on the 405 or the 110? Given enough practice, absolutely. But I never expect it to be perfect. I just expect to get to my destination eventually. And I'm rather not, dis I'm not disappointed. I usually make it. Now, using the don't know allows us to see opportunities to be the person we want to be or could be because we haven't solidified or created boundaries for ourselves or limitations. So when we have a good life, we are interconnected and interdependent. We are causing less suffering rather than more. And there's a certain sense of fulfillment, maybe not success. And the difference for me between fulfillment and success is success is on the outside, fulfillment is on the inside. There was a wonderful quote by somebody much wiser than I was who said, when you're young, you try to change the world. When you're old, you try to change yourself. So you go from success to fulfillment as you age in a skillful, harmonious way. I want to thank everybody for showing up today. I know there's a lot of other things you could be doing, even if you don't know what they are. Ha, 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 ha.